their story and applying the story of Israel to us today. And today we hit uh, a, a pretty well-known passage, a pretty well-known story in it, the story of Israel making a golden calf. Now, sometimes the Bible is hard to understand and hard to apply. Can I get an amen? This is not one of those cases. It is not one of those cases because the Bible actually applies this passage to us for us. In 1 Corinthians 10, Paul, the author of Corinthians, quotes Exodus 32 and then applies it to us. And in the context of 1 Corinthians 10, this is what it says, that they, Israel, they were all under the cloud, all passed through the sea, all baptized into Moses, all ate the same spiritual food, all drank the same spiritual drink from the spiritual rock that followed them, and the rock was Christ. Now, this is a reference to Israel being delivered out of bondage, out of slavery in Egypt. This is people, these are people who have tasted the deliverance of God. And then we hit verse 5. Nevertheless, with most of them, God was not pleased, for they were overthrown in the wilderness. Now, these things took place as examples for us, that we might not desire evil as they did. And then we hit verse 7. Verse 7 is where... Paul, the author of uh, 1 Corinthians, quotes our passage, Exodus 32. This is what it says. Do not be idolaters, as some of them were. As it is written, the people sat down to eat and drink and rose up to play. So when Paul, in the New Testament, in Corinthians, picks up Exodus 32, our passage today, he applies it like this. Do not be idolaters, as some of them were. What's an idol? Uh, Anything that takes a supreme place in our life. Anything that takes the place of God in our life, anything that we worship as God in our life, uh, usually it's good things, it can be anything, but anything that takes the place of God in our life is an idol. And, and why is it so important that you and I hear the words of Paul, the imperative of Paul in Corinthians, do not be an idolater as some of them were? Why is this a serious, serious directive from Paul? The answer to that is found in the word that Paul uses for idolater. The word that Paul uses for idolater is used six other times in the New Testament. That Greek word that he uses, it's used six other times, all in lists or in reference to people who are outside the people of God. All in reference to people who are outside what he would call the kingdom of God. In other words, when he says, do not be an idolater as some of them were, it's essentially a synonym for do not be an apostate or somebody who falls away as some of them were. There are times when the Bible encourages us. When we open it together as a community, we open it on our own, we read a passage, and that passage is just encouraging to where we are. There are times when we open the Scriptures together as a community on our own, and the Bible affirms us where we are. There are times we open the Scriptures together or on our own, and it just comforts us. And there are times when we open the Bible together or on our own, and it warns us. This is one of those warnings. So here's what we're going to do. We're going to dive into the idolatry that he's warning us away from, and we're going to see three things. One, the essence of idolatry, two, the effect of of idolatry, and three, how to fight idolatry. The essence of idolatry, the effect of idolatry, and three, how to fight idolatry. And so let's start, uh, talk Exodus and start with the essence of idolatry. Uh, But before we hit our text, we need to set the scene for where we are. We looked at it last week, Exodus 24. Here's what's happened. Moses 
takes uh, Aaron and 70 elders, and they go halfway up Mount Sinai. And so the people of Israel are at the base of the mountain. Moses, Aaron, 70 elders, they're halfway up the mountain on Mount Sinai. And then Moses goes to the top of the mountain, the presence of God at the top of Mount Sinai. And while he's up there, he's up there for 40 days and 40 nights, and he's getting instruction, chapters 25 to 31, on how to approach God. How, where do we approach God? How do we come into His presence. And that's where our scene picks up in verse 1. When the people saw that Moses delayed to come down from the mountain, the people gathered themselves together to Aaron and said to him, up, make us gods who shall go before us. As for this Moses, the man who brought us up out of the land of Egypt, we do not know what has become of him. So here's where the scene starts. The scene starts, Moses up at the top of the mountain, 40 days, 40 nights, and the people of Israel at the bottom going, we don't know what happened to Moses. We don't know what happened to Moses. This man, Moses, who brought us out, we don't know what's come of him. And so at, at minimum, there is a lack of patience and a lack of trust being observed here. But there's one thing in this text that I do not want us to miss because it's going to be important later on. Where were the people of Israel supposed to be? Bottom of the mountain. Where was Aaron? Halfway up the mountain. For the people... To go to Aaron means they went halfway up the mountain and then Aaron came back down the mountain with them. Our scene begins with the people of Israel and Aaron somewhere they were never supposed to be. That's where our scene begins. Flag that. We'll be coming back to it. Let's keep reading. So Aaron said to them, take off the rings of gold that are in the ears of your wives, your sons, and your daughters and bring them to me. So all the people took off the rings of gold that were in their ears and brought them to Aaron and received the gold from their hand and fashioned it with a graving tool and made a golden calf. And they said, these are your gods, O Israel, who brought you up out of the land of Egypt. And so they, they say, Aaron comes down and says, take off the gold from your ears. They bring it to Aaron and they make a golden calf out of it, more literally a young bull. So we have a gold young bull being made by the people of Israel at the bottom of the mountain. Why gold? Why a young bull? Well, in, the, in chapters 25 to 31, where Moses is up getting instructions from God on where and how to come into his presence, do you know how many times gold is referenced? 43. 43 times gold is referenced in those six chapters. And then the bull, the young bull, the bull was the sin offering to make atonement. And so what they have done is completely perverted the instructions of God on how it is that you come into my presence, how it is that you approach me. They have taken what God used gold in the sacrifice, the bull, and made a golden bull, inverting, perverting God's directions on how it is that you would come into my presence. So let's keep, let's keep reading again. Back in verse 4, and they said to him, these are your gods, O Israel, who brought you up out of the land of Egypt. When Aaron saw this, he built an altar before it. And Aaron made a proclamation and said, Tomorrow shall be a feast to the Lord. They rose up early the next day and offered burnt offerings and brought peace offerings. And the people sat down to eat and to drink and to rose up and rose up to play. So Israel, these, this golden calf, this is your gods, the gods who brought you up out of the land of Egypt. It wasn't Yahweh, the name of God. Certainly not him alone. It was Yahweh and these gods. Which takes us, which takes us a bit into, deeper into the essence of idolatry because obviously Yahweh was a part of it. In fact, we're going to have a festival to him tomorrow. Not one that we were commanded to have. We'll make up our own. That's not really a big deal. 
It absolutely was a big deal. So here's the heart of idolatry, what we see right here, that it's not the complete abandonment of your God for a golden calf. It is your God plus the golden calf. So it's not the complete abandonment of Yahweh altogether. We're going to have a feast to Yahweh. We're going to celebrate Yahweh. We're going to celebrate our God. But we're also going to have the golden calf. This is our God plus our calf. So what commandments are they breaking here? They're breaking the first two commandments. The two commandments that say you're not to have any other gods before me, and then don't, don't make carved images and bow down to them and worship them. And if you were here a couple of weeks ago, we talked about the language of the first commandment. The first commandment, not to have any other gods before me. And we said that that language, the, the, the Hebrew wording in there, was very intimate language, language that got used in association with some of the more intimate relationships in our life, including that of a spouse. And so we illustrated the language of uh, the first commandment like this, uh, that, uh, that that language isn't simply, hey, because you have a spouse, you're not to have another spouse. So for me, I have a wife. Her name is Amanda. And so that language isn't simply saying, hey, listen, you have a wife named Amanda, therefore don't have another wife. It's you have a wife named Amanda, therefore you don't have any other women out there who are women to you the way that Amanda is a woman to you. You don't blend your heart's affection and devotion for Amanda with any other woman out there. You have a wife, her name is Amanda. You don't blend your heart's affection, attraction, devotion to any other woman with, or to Amanda with any other woman. See, here's the, the point. The essence of idolatry is spiritual adultery. The essence of idolatry is spiritual adultery adultery. And in this text, we have a textbook case of the anatomy of adultery. It starts with a lack of trust, a lack of patience, moves to being somewhere that you don't belong. From there, you blend your heart's devotion to eventually you break the covenant. And if we were to keep reading all of this passage, we would see you lie to cover your tracks as Aaron did later on in the passage. This is the anatomy of adultery here, which takes us back to our warning which takes us back to the sober and serious warning. Because let me, let me tell you, I, I've done, um, I, I don't know how many weddings that I've done. It's a privilege to get to do weddings. I love it. Uh, and in, in a lot of them, people have wanted to write their own vows. Let me tell you what's never happened. No one has ever written their own vows, sent them to me, submitted them to me for approval that read like this. I will have and hold you until I find someone more attractive until I find someone who really gets me, until I can find somebody out there who is emotionally there for me, until I find that I'm in. That vow has never happened. No one, no one plans adultery on their wedding day. No one, when they're saying their vows, plans, you know what, I'm, I'm saying these words and I mean them for like three years. But I tell you what, year four, year five, I really don't see this lasting. And you know what? Neither did Israel. Repeatedly in Exodus, you know what we've heard from Israel? Whatever the Lord commands, we will do. Whatever the Lord commands, we will do. And yet, here we are. The essence of idolatry is spiritual adultery, but it wasn't a planned adultery. So what's the effect? Here's the effect. Loss of relationship and a broken covenant. Let's do loss of relationship first. It's right out of the next verse. Verse 7. And the Lord said to Moses, Go down for your people, whom you brought up out of the land of Egypt, have corrupted themselves. 
They turned aside quickly out of the way that I commanded them. They have made for themselves a golden calf and have worshipped it and sacrificed to it and said, These are your gods, O Israel, who brought you up out of the land of Egypt. And the Lord said to Moses, I have seen this people, and behold, it is a stiff-necked people. Throughout the book of Exodus that we've read so far, so far, not so far, it's not a phrase at all. How has the Lord referred to the people of Israel? I'm going to start it, you finish. You ready? My my people. How does the Lord refer to Israel right here? Your people. This people. Hey Moses, your people. Moses, I have seen this people. This is a relationship that is broken. Your people versus my people is parallel to me speaking of my wife as my wife and you speaking of her as your wife or a wife. One is the fruit of intimate relationship. One is not. My people has become your people and this people. So how does the scene continue on? The scene continues on and unfolds like this. God says to Moses, hey Moses, listen, my anger is burning and I am going to consume them. And God says, but Lord, don't, listen, don't, don't forget your promise, don't forget your covenant, don't forget your promises, and then your name among the nations. And the Lord relents and backs off. And then, verse 15, Moses comes down the mountain and this is what happens. Then Moses... Then Moses turned and went down from the mountain with the two tablets of the testimony in his hand. It's all the commandments written down. Tablets were written on both sides. On the front and on the back they were written. The tablets were the work of God and the writing was the writing of God engraved on the tablets. And so Moses is coming down with the two tablets. He's got the writing of God, the words of God in his arms. These two tablets, this how to live as my covenant people, comes down the mountain, and then as he gets closer, he hears the dancing and the singing, and then in verse 19, as soon as he came near, he, Moses, came near to the camp and saw the calf and the dancing, Moses' anger burned hot, and he threw the tablets out of his hands and broke them on the foot of the mountain. Moses comes down, he sees it, and he takes the tablets, he throws them down, shatters them literally at the foot of the mountain. And every commentator I could find agreed with this, that when Moses threw the tablets down and when they shattered, it was symbolic of saying, covenant's been broken. You, Israel, you broke the covenant. You have broken the covenant. And what happens next? Again, it's telling for reinforcing the original point in the people of Israel. Verse 20, he took the calf that they had made and burned it, burned it with fire and ground it to powder, uh, powder and scattered it on the water and made the people of Israel drink it. So Moses comes down and shatters the tablet, says, Israel, listen, you have broken the covenant. You are the, the adulterer who has broken this covenant. And then he takes the calf, burns it, powder, puts it in water and makes them drink of it. What in the world is he doing making them drink water with powder from the calf in it. Numbers 5 may give us some clues. There, a woman accused of adultery is made to drink water mixed with dust from the floor of the tabernacle. This is a trial by ordeal in which the, a transgressor can be identified. Since all Israel were made to drink from the water, 
while the people would then be seen to have been put on trial. See, the parallel event to what's happening here in the Old Testament is a woman caught in adultery and how you find out that she has been caught in adultery. And Moses' point is this, I shattered the tablets, I made you drink from the water because you are the unfaithful bride who has broken the covenant. You, Israel, this is who you have become. You have become the unfaithful bride who has broken this covenant. And I want us to see how Moses responds because I find it to be astounding. Because listen, if this were me, if I'm in Moses' shoes, I have put my neck on the line for these people. I have gone before Pharaoh, put my life on the line for these people. I think I'm turning back to the Lord and going, you know what? You're right. Let it rip, baby. I mean, your anger, your fury, let it go. When I was with you, I couldn't see it. Now that I see it, you were right. Not Moses. Look at verse 30. The next day Moses said to the people, you have sinned a great sin, and now I will go up to the Lord. Perhaps I can make atonement for your sin. So Moses returned to the Lord and said, alas, this people has sinned a great sin. They have made for themselves gods of gold, but now if you will forgive their sin, but if not, please blot me out of your book that you have written. But the Lord said to Moses, Whoever has sinned against me, I will blot out of my book. But now go, lead the people to the place which I have spoken to you. Behold, my angel shall go before you. Nevertheless, in the day when I visit, I will visit their sin upon them. I think that the way that Moses responds here is absolutely stunning. I would not have responded like this. I would have responded with, Lord, you are right. They deserve it. And Moses says, listen, you, you have sinned a great sin. There's no way around that. What you've done is awful. It is a perversion of what God wants for his people. It is, you have sinned a great sin, but let me tell you what I'm going to do. I'm going to go back up the mountain, and I'm going to go back in the presence of God, and I'm going to try to make atonement for you. Do you know what atonement is? Here's atonement. Atonement, the word, English word atonement is derived from two words, at one mint, and presupposes two parties that are estranged with the act of atonement being the reconciliation of them into a state of harmony. Moses goes and says, I'm going to go up to the top of the mountain. I'm going to try to make the two of you one again. I'm going to try to make the two of you that have been separated. I'm going to try to make you one again. And you know how I'm going to do it? I'm going to offer my life as a sacrifice. Listen, if you'll you'll forgive them, but if you won't, if you won't, blot me out of the book. Blot me out of the book for them. He offered himself as a substitute, which is simply, simply stunning by Moses. But God says no. He says no. He says, Moses, you are my chosen leader for these people, but not even your life, not even your life can be a substitute for them, for their sin. Why? Why? Because the story of Exodus certainly has Moses as an exalted central figure in the story, but the story isn't about Moses. It was about a Moses to come. It was about a greater Moses that would come. Jesus, who is that greater Moses, who would come down from the mountain, who would see our sin, would give himself as a substitute for us. Moses would throw tablets with the words of God down on them, but Jesus was the word made flesh who threw himself down on the cross, shattered for us. Jesus is the one, one who would descend into the wrath of God, who in that moment was blotted out for us. Jesus is the one whose blood would atone for our sin. Jesus is the one whose blood would make us 
one with God, but Jesus wasn't only the true Moses, he was also the Israel to come. He was the faithful one to the end. And when this sinks in, when this sinks in, you can fight idolatry. You can heed Paul's warning to not be an idolater when this sinks in deep to your core. You can read Galatians 2. I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. And the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. When this grace sinks in, it can change everything about you and you can fight idolatry. You can uproot it from its core. The question becomes how. How do we fight idolatry? How do we take this Exodus 32 Heed Paul's warning in Corinthians, apply it to us. What can we do? Well, there is certainly probably no end to the practical helps that we can give. But I want to try to apply it in light of where our passage began. Where did our passage begin? It began with Israel going somewhere they were never meant to be. And then Aaron leaving where he was meant to be and going somewhere he didn't belong. And so what I'd like to do is try to invert it and say, If you want to fight idolatry at its core, you need to be where you belong. It is obvious strip clubs are a bad idea. They will not help your worship of Jesus. So it's not simply don't go certain places, but you need to be where you belong. You need to be where you can approach God the way that God has said, you come into my presence. And at Sojourn, at our church, and the way that we do things here, that means two things. That means parishes, and that means Sunday gatherings. That means parish life, and it means prioritizing Sunday mornings. And when we think of those two things, we think this, two wings on a plane, one falls off, it crashes. Two wings on a plane, one falls off, it crashes. Listen, if if, if you prioritize Sundays, if you love Sunday mornings, I mean, you love the music, uh, you, you love the way that we do liturgy, you love sermons, when Dodds preaches, <laughs> you love everything about it. But you don't prioritize life in community where you are known intimately in relationship with other people, where confession is a regular rhythm in your life. You know what that is? One wing on a plane falling off. And inversely, you, you love rich life in community. I mean, you, just transparency and vulnerability, you are good with that. Like, you just love it. But you don't prioritize gathering on Sunday mornings for word and the table. You know what that is? One wing on the plane falling off. Two wings on the plane meant to keep the plane in the air and you sustained to the end. Be where you belong. You want to heed Paul's warning to not be an idolater, to not be somebody who drifts away. It's not simply don't be certain places, but you need to be where you belong. You need to be among the people where God says, come into my presence with them. Two wings on a plane, communal life in parishes, corporate worship on Sundays. Two wings on a plane meant to keep the plane in the air and you sustained to the end. You want to heed Paul's warning. Be where you belong. Sojourn, we, we, so, we so deeply and desperately want to beg God to keep us to the end. For us to look back 50 years from now and to be able to say, all of us, we heeded Paul. We heeded it. We heard it. It sank in. And then we lived it. And we have been faithful to the end. 
We so deeply want that to be our story and your story. Faithful to the end. The best way to undercut and uproot idolatry, be where you belong. Two wings on a plane. One falls off, it crashes. Let's pray. Father, I know that uh, there are so many of us in this room who um, we, we come in from places that are all over the map. Uh, I know that a good number of us in here are living with the pain and the effects of people that we love, not heeding the warning of Paul. I pray that you would comfort us right now, comfort those who need to be comforted in this moment right now. At your table, comfort us. And then we're asking for you to keep us, sustain us, every one of us, Lord, every one of us, keep us and sustain us to the end. May we be a people who take your warnings seriously, knowing your warnings are part of how you keep us to the end. Let your word rest deep in our hearts. May we be a people sustained by you, by your grace, by your mercy, faithful to the end. We pray in Christ's name. Amen.